So have have you ever uh, made a mess and then made a bigger mess trying to clean it up? Um, I there was one time I, I was I was younger and uh, I had saved up some money uh, to buy this sweatshirt from a store that uh, was more expensive than any clothing I would normally wear, but I really wanted it, and so I saved up this money. And I bought this sweatshirt. And it took me maybe all of two times wearing it uh, that I spilled something on it. Well, I can't remember exactly what I spilled on it, but I went to start cleaning it up. And instead of cleaning it, it just kind of made the spill bigger. Ever have one of those situations? So I'm like, okay, I need some outside cleaning uh, solution to help me, not just whatever this water and rag is. And it was getting bigger. And so I'm like, okay, so I went and looked into the around our laundry area. What can I get? I'm going to get this. And I started spraying and rubbing down. Well, turns out that had some kind of bleach in it, right? So it started, you know, kind of the color started turning from blue to this light pink. And then eventually this little white started on the inside. I'm like, man, well, what am I going to do now? And I thought, well, I don't want it to be like mostly pink. So maybe I'll just do more of the bleach and try and make it more white and look on purpose and do a couple other spots. Well, so I did it and it started working perfectly. I'm like, great. And all of a sudden these little holes started forming right inside in the middle of it. And it just ate it right away. And then all of a sudden my sweatshirt was no more. Um, <laughs> now, that's easy to look back on and laugh at. Uh, and a sweatshirt uh, that didn't really mean anything in the grander scheme of things. However, when it comes to some of the messes uh, that are in our lives, um, there are times that we have tried to clean things up and we ended up making things a whole lot worse uh, because of the way we went about trying to clean things up. Now, we're in the last week of this series and up to this point, uh, we've been focusing on ourselves. Uh, when we make areas in, in messes in areas of our life, uh, sometimes just maybe one area of life, sometimes all the areas of life, right, that it creates tension within you and it creates a tense environment around you because of the stress that's created of those messes. Um, you know, some of you watch this video and it's just kind of funny to you because maybe it's not too close to what you live with. Some of you watch this and you laugh nervously because it's like, oh yeah, that looks a little too familiar. Um, I, I, I was laughing at it at the first of the week, uh, the first week we started this because it was like, oh yeah, I remember those kinds of things. Well, this week I've had some family in town. You can say hey to them in the back. And they've got, they've got uh, three young children. And so my house this uh, weekend has been the living version of this video. And uh, so it has brought more perspective to me of uh, the messes that can be made um, around. But, but uh, today we are going to switch the focus from looking at the messes in our own life and if you've got those, which we all have them in different areas, I encourage you to go back and look at the last few weeks as to how to address that. Um, but we're going to turn and we're going to look for this last week um, what it's like when you're around somebody who they've got messes in their life and their tension and stress that they've got is always threatening to spill over on you. And how do you go about handling that? Right? Um, because most of us have situations that exist where we've got somebody like that in our life, kind of in our, 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 our arena around us, right? And the temptation when we're in those moments uh, is sometimes to try and want to fix their mess, right? Because there's something about all of it 
that it's much easier for us to see clearly other people's messes, right? The decisions they're making that aren't right, the things they're doing wrong than it is to see ours, right? Ours, everything makes sense because that's why we would make that decision, right? It's the right thing to do. But it's easier to look at other people's mess and be like, oh, well, it's because you're doing this and this and this. And there's kind of that tendency to sometimes want to interject our ideas, our opinions into that. Um, but we got to be careful when trying to attempt to address someone else's mess because we could make it a whole lot messier when we do it, right? Because uh, with messes come a lot of options as to how you can respond to those messes. And many of those options only make the mess messier. They just make it worse, right? So to talk about how to avoid uh, making the mess messier, uh, we are going to look at a story uh, in the Old Testament. We're going to look in 1 Samuel. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in chapter 18. Now, this is a very familiar story. So when we start, what I want you to try to do is not just jump to the end in your mind, right? Because you all know the end of the story, all right? What I want you to do is hopefully kind of go with me and try and make yourself don't jump to the end, experience it as it unfolds. Because there's some things that we're gonna discover along the way. Now this takes place about a thousand years uh, before Jesus showed up uh, on the scene. And uh, this is some of the earlier parts um, of the life of David. Now David is an interesting character because David does two things in the Bible. One, he gives us a whole lot of things that we should look at and emulate and base some of the things that we do on. He also gives us a whole lot of things that we should look at and be like, oh, that's a really good example of how not to handle that situation. Some of the things that he did later on in life were so messed up that they ended up causing the chain reaction of the entire family falling apart, right? But we're gonna be looking at the early part because David did something um, that really gives us a great example of how we should uh, handle other people's messes when they're infringing upon us. So, so he, here it is. Um, and this story actually begins when David is a boy. Because when he was young, when he was a boy, one day the prophet Samuel shows up to his house. And Samuel tells David's father, hey, I'm going to anoint one of your children to be the next king of Israel. Well, it turns out that was David. So as a boy, he was anointed king. But the problem was, is that Israel already had a king, right? So we got anointed a new king, old king already exists. So now there's adult King Saul, right? And then there's shepherd boy, King David, who immediately after being anointed king turns around and heads just back out to the fields to watch over the sheep, right? Well, as time went by, David started to make a name for himself in the community, right? There's this very obscure story, very, not a very well-known story about David visiting his brothers when they're on their battlefield, right? And there was this giant warrior who was taunting them and he looked around and nobody was doing anything. And so David said, well, I'll do something. And so he marches down into the valley, right? And kills Goliath. Um, you know, you should look it up. It's an interesting story you've probably not heard of. But um, after that, he was an overnight sensation, right? You take down Goliath, you take down the Philistine who was taunting the nation of the Lord, right? You know, you're a big deal, right? People began um, to view David differently. 
right? He was the top trender on Twitter for like two straight weeks, like after this event. Saul who? Nobody remembered, right? And, and in fact, things were going so well for David that the prophet Samuel said this. Verse 14, he says, in everything he did, speaking of Daniel, he had great success because the Lord was with him, right? He was on a roll. Everything he did, came up golden for him, right? But when Saul began to see how successful David was, he began to fear him. He began to be afraid, but the people loved David. And the reason they loved David is because after he killed Saul and he started to rise up, uh, David um, began to lead all of their military campaigns. It wasn't Saul, the king, who was doing it, which is what should have been taking place, right? And so Saul had the title of king, He had the official position of leader, but most of the nation of Israel began to look to David as the actual leader because he was the one that was leading all of the military campaigns. Now, the reason that it was necessary for Saul to anoint David as king when Israel still had a king was because Saul was a mess, right? You talk about somebody who had different areas of life that were a mess, Saul was it, He wasn't following anything that God wanted him to do. Things were falling apart all around him, right? So in an effort to control David, because David was gaining all this influence and power and the respect of the people, um, Saul's like, okay, I've got to control this kid. So what he decides to do is he decides to offer David one of his daughter's hands in marriage, right? Because if David was his son-in-law, then Saul would be able to have control over him, right? There would be that, but, but David didn't play along. Saul offers his daughter. David says, thank you, king. I am so honored, but I am just a lonely, per- a lowly person from a lowly family. I am not worthy of marrying the daughter of the king. Well, word of this gets out and it elevates David even higher, Right? Because now not only is he David the conqueror, David the leader, now, you know, now he can add on David the humble who recognizes his place, right? who's not going to elevate himself. So as David is getting more and more and more popular through all this, Saul's becoming more and more and more of a mess. He's losing control of areas of his life, right? And the atmosphere surrounding him got more and more tense as every day went by. And as far as situations go with uh, the amount, uh, the, 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 the anxiety, the tenseness that was felt in it, this was about as bad as it gets, right? So at this point, at this point, another one of David or of Saul's daughters falls in love with David, right? So Saul tries again. He says, okay, I'm going to offer you my daughter's hand in marriage. And apparently this time, David must have felt the same way about that girl that she was feeling about him because this time David accepts, right? He accepts the offer of marriage and Saul thinks, aha, I've got him now. Now he can be under my control. So here's what he does. He says, David, that's great. I'm glad you accept. Here's the price of my daughter's hand in marriage. It's not money like might've been traditional. It's not, it's not herds of animals. It's not any of that. The price is 100 dead Philistines who were the enemy of the nation of Israel at the time. 
100 dead Philistines. And his thinking was this, is that I can get rid of David without ever raising a hand against him. Because there's no way he could set out to try and kill 100 Philistines and survive. So he will die doing this noble thing, trying to earn the king's daughter's hand in marriage, and it won't come back on me, right? But didn't work out that way. And I don't know, I don't know how many situations you've been in that have been extremely tense situation, but I bet you've never been in a situation where someone was actively planning your death. <laughs> That's a level of tenseness and anxiety uh, that elevates above anything that I hope any of you have experienced in your life. I hope you don't have somebody planning your death, right? Well, doesn't go exactly how uh, Saul thought it would go. He goes out, Daniel and his guys, and they kill 200 Philistines. And not only did they kill him, they brought back the evidence. And I'm going to leave for you to go back and read what that evidence was that they brought back. But they bring back the evidence of we have killed these men. <laughs> Samuel tells us this. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter, Micah, loved David, which meant he was not going to be able to manipulate David through her. She was on David's side. Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Now Saul has, a, uh, David has a mess on his hands that is not of his doing. He now has a father-in-law who hates him, considers him an enemy, and regularly thinks about, if not actively plans, killing him, right? Saul, during this time period, is just coming apart at the seams. It's all falling apart. One night at dinner, Saul becomes so upset that he picks up a spear and he throws it across the table at David in an effort to kill him. Now, I know you have probably been to some tense family dinners around the holidays. I bet there has not been an active attempted murder at the dinner table. Like things were tense, right? So David flees the palace. He heads, he heads out into the desert to hide, right? And from that point on, it was Saul's mission to end the life of David because he was jealous, right? He wanted his son Jonathan to be the next king, right? And as long as David was alive, David was a threat uh, to, uh, to the legacy that, that the dynasty that Saul envisioned Israel becoming through his lineage. David was a threat to all of it, right? So David flees and hides. When he leaves the city to hide, he takes a group of people with him uh, who, are, who are loyal to him, and he travels with them as now an outlaw. And this is when the story gets really interesting. We have chapter 24, verse 1, it says this. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, because once David was gone, Saul had to resume control of the army. He was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. In other words, somebody told him and said, hey, Saul, 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 we saw David and his men. We saw them. We followed them, and we think we have them cornered. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags 
of the wild goats. Now, crags of the wild goats does not sound like a great place to vacation, but here's what the crag of the wild goats looks like. It's out in the middle of the desert, in sort of a little oasis. It's a natural spring that springs up. It's got rocks and mountains and desert that surrounds it, but right around the water, there's trees and some wild grass and things. So they assume David and his men hiding out in the desert, they came this direction. There's a good chance that that's where they are. So Saul sees this as his opportunity to take care of David once and for all. So he takes off after him. It says, he came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. <laughs> now, this is great. This is one of the only examples in the Bible uh, of them talking about someone going to the bathroom. Uh, I assume everyone who was a character in the Bible did it. But uh, this is one of the few times the Bible actually tells us um, <laughs> that they did that. But he says he went in there to relieve himself. And David and his men were far back in the cave. Now, here's what happened. When Saul began chasing David and his men down, right? One of David's scouts saw that they were chasing him, caught up to him and said, hey, he's on his way. Like they know where we are, they're coming. So David decided instead of trying to outrun him, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna split up and hide in the caves because there were hundreds and hundreds of caves in that area. There is no way Saul would have been able to search all of the caves to find those men. So he's like, we're gonna split up, hide in the caves. Once they pass, we'll reconvene together, head in the opposite direction. That's the plan, right? So David and his men, they were hiding in what happened to be the very cave that Saul chooses to use as a bathroom. Now, here's the question that I have to ask you. What are the odds? What are the odds? Like, I drive by that billboard that I reference on a regular occasion every Sunday morning. It's got the lottery numbers on it, right? We're up to almost a half a billion. About time for me to throw my hat in the ring again, you know, because who wants 40 million? I'll, <laughs> I need 500. Uh, yeah, the odds of me hitting that lottery, <laughs> like, it was just slightly better odds that Saul would pick the cave David was hiding in to go in and relieve himself, Right? If God was ever going to perform a miracle on David's behalf, surely Saul picking that cave was it. Because if Saul was the problem, God just provided the solution. How much clearer could it be, right? In fact, that's exactly how David's men felt about the whole situation. Here's what it is. They said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish, right? And here's what they were referring to, that as they traveled as outlaws for months and months and months, right? They would gather around the campfire at night and they were tired and they were poor. They didn't have anywhere real to sleep. They were away from their family. And around the fire at night, David would say to the guys, guys, stick with me. I know things are tough, but be patient because one day I will be king. One day God is going to honor his promise to me. And when he does, I will reward you. So stick with me. I know this is tough. And so the men, they're sitting there in the back of the cave and they're like, David, this is it. This is what you spoke of. 
right? This is the day you promised. This is the day we've waited for. This is why we haven't turned on you before now as we're running around here in the desert hiding from everything, right? God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now, could you imagine the drama outside the cave, right? If you were one of Saul's men and you watched Saul disappear up into a cave to go to the bathroom and David came out, like, that's like some drama, right there, right? And David's God's like, David, David, David. It can be even better than that. Imagine if Saul goes in and you come out and then when you come out, you hold up Saul's severed head. Like that's movie worthy, right? That would be amazing, right? That's the way it would be. All of Saul's men would certainly just pledge their devotion to you, David. It's all right here in front of you. Well, David kind of gets caught up in the emotion of it. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. This is it. It seems to be the answer. It seems to be the answer, right? And he decides, I am going to do unto him what he is trying to do unto me. He's trying to kill me. Mm-mm, not going to have that. I am going to kill him. Now, pause for a second in the story. We're going to come back to the story in a second. But at the root of most messes in people's lives, if you look at areas of their lives that are just chaos, at the root of that, inevitably, is a breakdown in virtue. You, if you start peeling back the layers and looking at what happened, and virtue is integrity, uh, honesty, patience, self-control, goodness. These are the virtuous things. Anytime there's an area of somebody's life that's a mess, you will find a lack of or a violation of virtue, right? In other words, in other words, you ignore virtue in your life, you will cause a mess. It's cause and effect, right? This is an unbreakable equation in life. It happens every time. And listen, this is really important for what we're talking about today. You don't clean up someone's fail of virtue with another fail of virtue. That's not how it works, right? You don't clean up a flood with adding more water to it. You don't, somebody spills paint, you don't clean that up by adding more paint to it. It just doesn't even make sense. So you don't clean up fail of virtue by adding on top of it more fail of virtue. But here's the problem. Every mess in people's lives, whether it's ours or somebody else's, every mess comes with options in how we can respond to it. And a lot of those options are bad. And those bad options always involve a failure of virtue. But those are the options that we tend to turn towards naturally because they look like they could work really quick. I mean, how quick of uh, of a fix to the problem is David being able to walk up behind Saul who's relieving himself and a quick, Slip of the knife across the neck. It's done quick, over with, let's move on. Right? But in life, people, ourselves and in our own lives and in other people's lives, uh, we tend to make things worse and situations worse and messes messier by going about the wrong way of cleaning it up, which oftentimes involves a lack of virtue. With every mess, there are options that reflect failures of virtue, which is exactly what David was getting ready to do. That's what he was getting ready to do. It says, then he crept up unnoticed. 
right? I don't know how quiet you have to be while someone's relieving themselves to sneak up on them, but he did it, right? And, and David was a warrior. This was in his wheelhouse. Like, you look at the list of David's kills over his life, both human and non. I mean, this would have been a layup, right? Not tough at all. Saul would never have known what happened. Would never have known. But as he was creeping up on King Saul, something dawns on him, right? There's that, that, that voice in the back of his head, right? He says, I am about to make my mess that I find myself in that I did not create. I'm about to make it messier. I am about to murder the king. Now that's a big thing to do. And if I murder the king, murdering the king will be part of my story forever. Forever, right? Now this is where we get trapped sometimes when we're trying to decide what we're going to do when it comes to approaching other people's messes and what we're going to do with it, right? Because... Because would David have been justified in killing Saul, right? The answer is, I'm pretty sure nobody would have blamed him. It was out there that it was Saul's goal to end his life. It pretty much would have just been the equivalent of self-defense, right? Is it what everyone expected him to do? Oh, absolutely, right? Was it the virtuous thing to do? Absolutely not. (laughs) No. And he was about to add to his story a chapter that he would have been embarrassed to tell for the rest of his life, right? Imagine it, granddaddy. Tell us the story again about how you became king. Well, your great-grandfather was dropping a deuce in the back of a cave. (laughs) And I was like, no, like that's that's not a proud story, right? That's not what you want to tell. And he was about to make a decision he would regret the rest of his life, even though it was justified, even though it's what everybody would have expected him to do, even though it was what Saul probably deserved. And there we are, right? There's our dilemma, right? There's our tension because every mess comes with bad options. So then David crept up unnoticed and instead of killing Saul, cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe, to which I'm like, what? He chose to not murder. I don't think he should be guilty about cutting off a piece of a robe. Okay, but he is guilty. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Well, David's men around him did not share David's remorse, right? They're like, no, and if you're not gonna do it, we're gonna do it, right? They were not down. But with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Now, imagine again, you're one of the people on the outside of the cave, who was in Saul's whole caravan, and you're sitting there waiting in the hot sun for Saul to finish relieving himself up in the cave, right? He finally comes out, starts walking down to his uh, chariot. You're getting everything together. You're getting ready to start moving on when suddenly you hear something. And you look up to the cave where Saul had just left. 
says, then David went out of the cave and he called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Everyone there knew what had happened or more specifically knew what didn't happen. And then David gives a speech. And it's a good speech. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day, you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some, maybe he threw his thumb over the shoulder, these guys urged me to kill you. But I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointing. In other words, he's saying, Saul, listen, you may not be acting like the Lord's anointed right now, but I've protected your life in a way that no one else would. And then he says something, right? He some says something that some in this room, maybe if there's a situation you're dealing with, need to hear when it comes to a situation and where maybe you're walking on eggshells around somebody because their mess in their life has created stress and anxiety and they're just on the edge of exploding onto you. He says this to Saul. He says, may the Lord judge between you and me. In other words, I, I'm, not, I'm not your judge. He says, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. Because there was no doubt that Saul had done him wrong. But my hand will not touch you. It will not touch you. It seemed that David's reputation could not have gotten any higher. But now we add to it, David the merciful. David the merciful. But here's what David was saying, which is what many of us need to say to ourselves when we're dealing with somebody who is a mess and it keeps spilling over onto us. That is, I'm opting for virtue over hurt you. Oh, that was terrible. But it works, right? Right? I I'm doing that. I am taking the high road here. Well, what can Saul do at that point? Right? What are, what, are, what are his options? Right? If he were to move against David in that moment, odds are most of his men wouldn't have gone with him. Right? It would have been, would have been a bad day. So he essentially looks up at David and says, today you have shown that you are a better man than me. And then he turns and he heads back to Jerusalem. And then seven chapters later, the arrow of a Philistine pierces Saul's armor. And he's done. David becomes king. With every mess, whether it be your life or someone else's, there comes a pre-packaged list of bad responses, bad options. And each of those options will make the mess messier. But your response to that person who has everybody on edge around them, who their stuff keeps spilling over onto you, becomes a permanent part of your life story. A permanent part, which brings us to the question that I beg you to ask yourself, and that's this. What story do I want to tell? What story do I want to tell? 
When all of this becomes a story to be told, because everything you go through eventually just becomes part of your life story to tell. What do you want to tell? Or how do you want people to remember you acting in the middle of that situation? How do you want people remembering you responding? I've, I've got situations that are going on in my life. And I don't know, I, I, I didn't mean to talk about this, but me and my therapist talk about it. <laughs> because there's situations going on in my life where I want to respond wholeheartedly in a singular specific way. And the thing that holds me back is how would I explain to my kids my responding that way? How would I explain that? Because I would have to. And just that idea is just enough to keep me <laughs> from choosing one of the bad options that undoubtedly in many areas would make the mess messier but might in the moment be also fulfilling when I do it. So when you find yourself dealing with messes that are not of your own creation, the way you respond, ask yourself the question, what story do I want to tell? Because you are going to have to tell the story of your response in that situation because there are people watching you. Even when you don't think that there are. And when you have to go back and tell your story, do you want to talk about how you abandoned virtue? Right? Do you want to have to talk about how you uh, traded one person's poor treatment for the poor treatment that you gave out? Right? That you responded in like kind or that you ended up making the mess bigger? Or do you want the story that you tell in that moment to be like, I did what was right, even though it was difficult? Right? even though that's rare for people to do, even though it would have been so emotionally satisfying in the moment to do that thing, that what you did was an example of the grace that your savior has shown you. Don't make the mess messier. Choose virtue over expediency. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for uh, the examples that we have in these texts that have been preserved for thousands of years. That even though they were things that took place in a completely different culture, in a completely different time period, that in almost no way relates to the world we live in today, somehow the principles apply and are just as true today as they were then. Lord, I thank you for the examples that you give us of the way that we should view and approach and handle things in different situations. And so as we bring this series to an end, Lord, I pray for those who are having to deal with someone else's mess, Lord, keep this question in front of us. What story do we wanna tell? And what is the virtuous way to respond. Lord, may we ultimately be mirrors of the grace that you have extended to us. Lord, we thank you for all you've done. Let us now be reflections of you in your name. Amen.
Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. Look forward to getting together next week.